In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For all the kids and teens up through the 12th grade, please come forward. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Everybody good? Good? Y'all out of school yet? Yeah? Feel good? Good. Uh, three things I want, before Father Larry comes up to preach, three things I want to mention this week. This is the last Sunday in our Easter season. The seventh Sunday after Easter. This is the last Sunday in our Easter season. Last Thursday, 40 days after the resurrection was, is what we call the feast of the ascension of our Lord into heaven. And on that day, uh, you read it in, in all uh, the three gospels and the book of Acts and about that experience of the Lord ascending into heaven and then two men, angels coming and saying, what are you looking for? Anyway, and so what, and Father Larry does a real good job with this in explaining the Trinity. And so when the Lord rises back into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, how does that look? Because Jesus is God, but you know what he's done? He's taken his resurrected humanity back into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he's one with God the Father, as the Spirit is one with God the Father, but his humanity, Jesus in his humanity, is seated at God's right hand and the scriptures tell us that he's praying for his church right now and always so he's ascended into heaven he's promised he's going to send the Holy Spirit that's next week that's Pentecost Sunday the feast of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes down upon his church and we'll have a wonderful Sunday next week but uh, just be aware of our church calendar. And the last thing I want to talk about is our first reading. And it was about Paul and Silas and Luke because Luke is the, gospel, is, the, is the gospel writer and the author of Acts. And this is from the book of Acts. And so he says, Paul and Silas and we, so he was talking about himself as well. We, we, we went into the place of, of, of where people worship and there were people selling things that shouldn't be sold and and, and, and Paul and the rest cast out demons and cast out magical powers that were there. And boy, did the people get upset. That was their livelihood. They were making things, selling them for money. And when Paul and the others cast out all these things and they weren't able to, to make these idols, then you know what happened? They, they got, all the crowds got crazy and they got excited and they took them to the magistrates and the magistrates ordered that they be stripped and beaten with rods and then it says with a severe flogging beat up Paul and Silas and Luke and whoever else was with them when they got beat up they put them in the innermost part of the of the dungeon in the prison and and put chains on their legs and their arms and it says it was about midnight now, if that were in our day and age, 
they would be in there, poor me, poor me, poor me. But you know what they were doing? They were singing hymns and praising God with blood running down their bodies because they got beat up by the magistrates. They were in prison. They were, they were in irons. And they were singing and praising God at midnight. I'd be asleep. Right? But they were. And then all of a sudden, wow, they were released by, the, by angels. They were released. And wonderful things happened after that. We don't need to go into all that. But just realize that there are things in this life that just don't seem right because this life is broken. But when we keep our eyes on heaven and we, and we know our eternal destiny and we know how much God loves us and is going to take care of us, the things that we go through now serve a purpose for God's kingdom if we allow it. When you're hurting, sing to God. Sing praises. Sing a song. Make up a song. But, but glorify God when, you, when you're hurting or when you're happy or when you're joyful or anything in this life. Praise God always. Makes a difference in your life and it certainly makes a, lot, a difference in the life of the kingdom because we remember it 2,000 years later what they were doing at midnight in that prison cell. It makes a difference. Okay? Thank you for coming. If you want to get a package... You want to get a package so you can color? Go right over there, and then you can go back and sit with Grandma. Thank you, Connor. Okay, Father Larry. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, what we do not know, teach us what we have not give us. What we are not, kindly make us for your son's sake. Amen. Well, on this seventh day of Easter, we conclude our reading of St. John's Revelation that we basically have been doing our epistles on for the past six Sundays. It is fitting that we are carefully examine these parting words from Jesus Christ as we find them recorded by St. John in the 22nd chapter of Revelation. We'll go through it by verse because they're really a lot packed in those verses. Verse 12, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to render to each man according to his work. Notice that Jesus does not say that he will render to each person according to what he or she professes to believe. He says that he will render to each one according to what each has done. It will be looking for the fruit of faith. In other words, it will be looking for proof that we are who we profess to be. So then upon the return of Christ, he will render to each person according to what they have done. First is the matter of salvation or the lack thereof. Those who die in their sins and turn away from our Lord and Savior will perish. Those who die in Christ, who receive forgiveness for their sins through faith in him, will see Jesus run towards them, embracing and kissing them, and welcoming them into the eternal kingdom, just as we find in the parable of the prodigal son. 
while we are served through faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, the outworking of faith is a life of faithfulness. True faith will be demonstrated by a sincere and genuine devotion to Christ. Those who profess Christ but are not living the Christian life but living for the world are deceived about their salvation. A life of faithful service will be richly rewarded. Christians who did the bare minimum with their lives will receive the bare minimum rewards. We move on to verse 13. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We hear these words often, especially during Mass. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. Our God, the true God, is the beginning and the end of all things. He is the eternal creator and ruler of the universe. He is preeminent over all things. He is the sovereign God. Therefore, his plan for mankind and for this world will be fully carried out. Nothing will resist it. The one speaking these words is Jesus. This is a declaration of his deity, for the same thing is said of God, the Father, in Revelations 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, saith the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. With this statement, Jesus declares to be Almighty God. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons of the Godhead. If you remove any member of the Trinity, God ceases to exist, for he exists in three persons. Therefore, it's erroneous to teach that God merely expresses himself in three different ways. In such a case, if you remove any of the three members of the Trinity, then God still continues to exist. But that's not the true Trinity of God. That's not who God is. The inseparability of three persons is what we declare to believe when we say each Sunday the Nicene Creed. The teaching of the triune God is central to the Christian faith. I've been challenged many times by some people of other faiths, Judaism, some of Islam, even the Jehovah Witness, that I am a polytheist because I believe in three gods. Fight that. That is not true. We believe in one God, not three. Well, verse 14. Blessed are they that wash their robes, that they may have the right to come to the tree of life and may enter it by the gates into the city. Well, this is a metaphor for those who have been cleansed of their sins by placing their faith in Jesus. Thus, it is symbolic of salvation. The verse that follows, that they, have, they may have the right to come to the tree of life, well, this speaks of our eternal security in Jesus Christ. Those who have been cleansed of their sins 
will have the right to come to the tree of life. In other words, they will be given life in the city, the eternal kingdom, forever and ever. It's an everlasting cleansing and an everlasting life in the presence of God and of the Lamb. And finally, enter in by the gates into the city. Well, be happy. Not only are we going to be admitted into the entrance to the gates, but we will never, ever have to leave. Well, it says then in the next verse, I, Jesus, have sent mine angels to testify unto you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright, the morning star. It's important to know that the true author of this book is not St. John. He's basically a secretary. He's just taking notes. The fact that it's Jesus who sent his angels to reveal the things in this book shows that this is God, a God-given book and that every word is true and every word will come to pass. Furthermore, Jesus is central in this book. It is in fact really the revelation of the Christ himself. While this verse likely refers directly to the seven churches of Revelations one through three, it is for the whole church, for all Christians throughout the world and for all time. Then Jesus says, I am the root of the offspring of David. This refers to the kingship of Christ, who is king over his kingdom, which is his church, his kingdoms now and reigns over his people now. His kingdom is forever and leads into eternal kingdom described in these last chapters of Revelation. What is possibly meant by Jesus when he says, I am the bright, the morning star. Possibly what Jesus is referring to is the eternal light that we have in him. A light that overcomes all darkness. It speaks directly of our eternal salvation in him. The fact that he uses the morning star to describe is significant. Because for those of you that get up early enough, Venus is seen when darkness of night turns into the light of day. So do we go from the darkness of sin and death to the light of life in Christ forever. The book of Revelation begins and ends with the kingdom of Christ and the church. We see this in Revelations 1, 5, 6, and now here in these verses of the last chapter. This suggests that all the events in between, except the two last two chapters, occur during the age of the church on earth all the travails and other tribulations. But the last two chapters really tell us what is to come, what we will expect. The Revelation, Revelation on, uh, 22, verse 17 goes on, the spirit and the bride says, come. In fact, Jesus said, come, follow me. It's a very, very well-worked word. It also says, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The bride is both the church and the holy city, which is the new Jerusalem of the new heaven and new earth. 
who is which is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Together as one, they say, come, and let him take the water of life freely. This is the invitation to the people, all people throughout the world, to turn from their sins and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. It's through the church, the gospel of Christ, that is spread both corporally and individually. Those who hear are those who truly hear the truth of the gospel message and respond in faith. In other words, while the corporate church, the bride says, come, so do the individual members of the church say, come. This speaks of our witness for Christ. We're to be faithfully sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. He who testifies these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. The response from us is, come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, it's been 2,000 years, and in my opinion, he hasn't come fast enough. But he will come. And for many of us, he will come at the moment that we don't expect. Not maybe when he appears again, but any time during our life that we must be prepared. And it finally ends in verse 21 with a blessing to all the saints of the body of Christ. Amen. I would like now just take a short time to uh, talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ that was celebrated last Thursday. Well, the ascension of Christ is the consummation. It's the end point of his ministry on earth. And uh, it's a redemptive work that he has started and completes with his ascension. It took place 40 days after the resurrection appearances when Jesus ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, just like Father said, from Bethany. And they saw this from Bethany's side of the ridge of the Mount of Olives. Many of our people that are traveling there have seen it directly, this valley. The bodily appearance of Jesus came to an end, but there were eyewitnesses to the ascension of Jesus. It wasn't something that was a story that just one or two people passed on. Their eyes were fixed on him as he ascended. So there could be no mistake about the event that was so supernatural. As the disciples were standing on the Mount of Olives, they saw Jesus suddenly ascend into a cloud and they never saw him again. He didn't go beyond the cloud either. He just disappeared. Two men in white clothing stood beside the apostle and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Well, who are these two men in white clothing that just appear out of nowhere? Well, uh, some people think like uh, D.L. Moody that is Moses and Elijah reflecting back to the transfiguration of Jesus. But a lot of people, uh, a lot, most of the Bible scholars believe they're basically angelic figures that appear quite often during Acts. Well, the two men tell the disciples, this Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back just the same way you have watched him go into heaven. So we all should be looking up, huh? The implication is that he who's not immediately, uh, who did not immediately appear promises to come back. And even though 2,000 years have passed, you must believe that Jesus will come back. 
The ascension is the abiding proof that the resurrection of Jesus was more than a temporary resuscitation. It conveyed to his followers that the appearance that had occurred over a 40-day period had come to an end. Their teaching period was over, and there was now an awareness that he was with them, just not sometime, but all the time. In reality, there truly was no disappearance of Christ. They just couldn't see his presence with physical sight. He was no longer perceived by physical sight or sensation, but by spiritual insight as we go inward and when we deal with people that he's created. The cloud that received Jesus was the visible symbol of God's glory that received him and hid him from their eyes. The cloud served only to hide Jesus, but not to separate him from us. Well, I pray that Jesus Christ returns to earth soon to bring the eternal love and peace of the kingdom of God to all who believe in him and for every knee to bow to him and for every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord at his return. Amen.